Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have with me uh, Randy Harris. Um, he's, I, I, what, what would you, what would you call your title? I would, I would say preservation historian, but what would you, what would you title yourself? <laughs> um, I, I've been calling myself a consulting historian because okay. I've been working independently on these kinds of issues. Um, but preservation advocate is probably another apt term for kind oh, of the work good. that I've been doing. Yeah, very good. So, so tell me, tell me about your background. Okay, um, come from Western Pennsylvania, um, the steel towns outside of Pittsburgh, and um, not exactly sure how I got interested in history, but I, I gravitated into photography, commercial art, and later journalism in my college years in that area. Um, and I never lived or worked anybody anywhere else except the Pittsburgh area until mid nineties when we moved to uh, Harrisburg when my wife got a job and then I came to Lancaster when I heard about the job at Historic Preservation Trust of Lancaster County. So um, so I come from, again, journalism, I guess gravitated to writing a lot of history focused stories or feature stories about um, that area's history. A very, I worked for this hyper-local uh, daily newspaper in the, in the town of Homestead I guess that's probably probably a part of how I um, got most interested in this. My my family would travel to the usual places, and my uncle and my dad would always stop and take pictures at historic buildings and run down places, and that kind of stuck in my head because those two guys were like my heroes. And uh, so we went to you know Williamsburg and D.C. and uh, traveled up up and down across Pennsylvania a lot, and um, that. We always stopped at historical markers and looked at them and tried to read them and things like that. But the biggest thing I, that I was so interested in was, um, so I'm living in this town of Duquesne. I'm, I'm going to Catholic school, fourth grade, you know, American history. And there's a story in there about the Homestead strike of 1892, the lockout and strike between Andrew Carnegie, oh, yeah. Henry Clay Frick, and, the, and this early labor union that had um, achieved a great foothold in terms of a uh, democratic rights and worker rights and hourly wages and things like that in, in the steel plant there. This is 1880s, late 80s, early 90s. And um, then there was this big strike, a big battle lockout. Some people got killed. It made national news. And so I was just really impressed that here's here's an American history book published in Chicago, which seemed to be like, you know, on the other side of the world to me. Right. And there's a story about a little town right down the road from me. And it kind of drove home the notion that all history, like all politics is local, all history is local. Right. 
And so something happens somewhere for a reason and people look at it and give it some level of importance. So all that connected. So every history book I looked had after that, I looked at the index right away and there was always at least a couple of sentences in there about the homestead lockout and strike. So fast forward or late forward, I'm working at this newspaper in this town of Homestead and it, it was like the bicentennial, so mid seventies. So everybody was looking at their community history at that time and writing stories about it. And um, I got involved with, uh, you know, doing a story about the Homestead lockout and strike in the Homestead paper that were that had covered that, you know, 100 plus years before. Oh, yeah. So it was really a wonderful kind of time space connection thing there. Um, then I, I got laid off at the newspaper when the steel industry started collapsing. And I got picked up uh, at a, got a public information job at the local uh, Pittsburgh Regional Office of Department of Housing and Urban Development, federal government. So I found out there that all the managers in that office were these young college kids from the 60s who were running the urban renewal programs that were destroying all of these right. downtown areas all across the country, and including the, the folks there, the managers there, were from Western PA largely. Um, and I found out that the people running the office there really didn't place a high priority on historic preservation, even though the statutes and the laws and the regs that they operated under um, required them to pay attention to historic properties and look for ways to preserve buildings rather than tear them down and uh, like they did in the urban renewal days. So um, I got I, I was there for like 11 years and got involved in a bunch of different kinds of jobs there in the office, appraisals, environmental reviews, um, multifamily housing. Um, but it got to be really bureaucratic and, and I wanted to branch out. So I got I got involved with consulting on my own in historic preservation and community development. And um, um, jumped into that field. And then I got involved with the uh, Steel Industry Heritage Corporation, which is a private nonprofit. It's now known as Rivers of Steel National Heritage Area. It's a six county multiple heritage region uh, sanctioned by the state of Pennsylvania and the federal government. And so we worked on, um, I was a, a, a I guess I was a community organizer, kind of a consultant with them for several years. And we worked on trying to preserve not just some of the buildings related to the steel industry, but also the people stories, the backstories, um, labor history. And it expanded beyond just steel. It was coal and river boating and railroading, the whole industrial apparatus of Western Pennsylvania, which is part of my family DNA. I'm, my, name's, my name's Harris, but I'm really 100% Slovak because my great my grandfather had changed his name back in the early 20th century because I think the story we heard was his wife was afraid he was going to get tied uh, tagged with uh, being a, um, a you know a, a communist from oh, Eastern yeah. Europe so they, they wanted to anglicize them themselves so they so she convinced him to change his name when he became naturalized um, so anyway that's so that's, yeah, that's I, I sat through a um, a few years ago a presentation at um, uh, the PA downtown of all the rail to trails that they've done around the Pittsburgh area tied to the tied to the um, that that six county region. Yeah, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it was it was really interesting. <laughs> right. So like a lot of these heritage areas, like the one that we have here now in Lancaster, New York County, they connect uh, natural resource protection, rec outdoor recreation, uh, general education of the communities about the importance of history and heritage. So it's a really good organizing model to allow communities to examine their history and look for what is there that can be really helpful in shaping their future. Because 
um, you know, we all need to know more about our history because it gets forgotten so easily, whether it's from a book or in a building or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and we need to learn those lessons, as we always say, as being history minded people. Right. Yeah, definitely. So I think you kind of answered the question of why preservation. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to add to that? Uh, well, um, yeah, that, that's always been the, uh, the tough, uh, tough educational hurdle to crack, I guess, is when, when, when people, whether you're a building owner, uh, a resident, an occupant of a building or a municipal person deciding whether or not uh, how a project might affect a building, uh, a lot of folks can't get past the altered condition of a building, let's say. Um, so if previous owners have left something uh, deteriorate and or had some not so appropriate modifications made to it, right. people tend to want to say, oh, that's, you know, what, what's historic about this? Because most people real look at history, historic buildings and places as, you know, like Williamsburg. Uh, right. and, yeah, like a museum. And, yeah. yeah, museum piece, right. Rather than how can we make this building, well, first of all, is it worth saving? Because not every old building is worth saving. Right. But look at looking not just at the physical structure and its potential, but what, what are the backstories of the people and events that are connected with it? Do, do they rise above uh, requiring a closer examination and, and extra efforts made to, to preserve them? And I would say we have two of the best examples in the city of Lancaster to tell us all about that. And that is the Sainer Ellicott House where the Historic Preservation Trust is located and the Thaddeus Stevens House, two different time periods but two nationally important stories uh, derived from those properties that folks in our time period were willing to let go and not consider uh, the backstory around which, which makes those buildings so important. Uh, in the case of the Ellicott House, if, you look, if you're there on North Prince Street, as you have been a lot lately, I'm sure, the historical marker in the front tells the story of Meriwether Lewis coming there. So Thomas Jefferson sends his chief of staff, Meriwether Lewis, there to learn how to do surveying and navigation and map making in preparation for the major Lewis and Clark expedition. And the man that taught him those skills was Andrew Ellicott, who was living there at the house at the time as the state land surveyor. So this, the, the point being is the knowledge conveyed in that, in that house in 1803 or whatever the year was, you know, shaped America. It absolutely it gave the yeah. United States government the president, Congress, the ability to understand what they were buying for 25 or what was it, 25 or $50 million back um, then? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere in that range, yeah. So, I mean, so that that is just so important. Yeah. And it doesn't, uh, you know, it didn't help the fact that by 1966, urban renewal era, that was the Otters Club, a private men's drinking club. Right. The building just looked so average. No one would have looked at it and thought it was anything historically significant. Similarly, we had to relearn those lessons 30 years later when I came to town in the Thaddeus Stevens house. Yeah. That was gonna to be torn down for the convention center project. And it had been vastly altered and it didn't look like it did when Stevens lived there. Right. But extraordinary efforts were made to build the story of who Stevens was and who was this woman of color that he lived with for the last 20 years of his life, Lydia Hamilton Smith. Right. And to elevate those people to understand all the major contributions they made and to give that as a reason for making the extra effort to to try to save the building, which thankfully we are there and we're moving ahead. Yeah. No, and, and I and I I definitely agree with you. And even 
incorporating the um, the the Montgomery House and the Stevens House into the convention center makes the convention center so much more interesting than any other convention center that I've ever been to. You know, yeah, it, it right. is. It's, exactly. Uh, you know, it, I don't think that that was the original in, uh, vision or intention. But if I was the architect, I would just embrace it. And, and <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, don't forget the Watt and Shan facade, even right. though we couldn't yeah. save the whole building. Right. Uh, that effort, I mean, you know, that was put on the National Register, uh, but then decided that it couldn't accommodate uh, the kind of a grand lobby of a, of a three or four star hotel. But the facade, they were extraordinary efforts to save that facade exactly. because of its exactly. longstanding, beautiful presence on the on the square, the imposing uh, presence on the square. And um, so that's part of it. And of course, after all the dust settled, after all of the initial controversy about what should be saved, what can come down, all, all that, the architects, as you may know, and the designers and developers got major national awards for, just, for combining the old and the new together, yeah. As, yeah. as well they should have, you know, because the outcome was pretty darn good considering it is. What, what could have been. Yeah. And one thing that I love that they did with that facade is that they opened up the storefront windows again and made it mm -hmm. look like a, a downtown storefront where for years that Watt and Shan had been, I don't know if they were co coded over or co I don't know how, but they weren't, they didn't look like storefronts. Yeah, so, right. yeah, yeah. They were not, not welcoming to the pedestrian yeah. folk. No, not yeah. at all. So mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I, I think that those are both um, very much um, success stories. So, so tell me, tell me about your work with Lancaster history. Well, this has been um, like a gift from above or something. I don't know. It's been like 20, so 20 years ago involved with um, uh, advocating for the pr preservation of the Stevens and Smith houses and office on the corner. Um, and now coming full, full circle to being um, what I'm now doing is uh, community outreach and continuing research into the property to assist the staff at Lancaster History and the consultants and architects that have been hired uh, to move the project forward with an expected opening in 2024. So um, the architects are Centerbrook architects from Connecticut and the exhibit designers, the interpretive planners are Ralph Applebaum and Associates from Alexandria, Virginia. And they are the group of amazing, talented people who are doing the planning, the, the, uh, the conceptual designs for how the building will be outfitted on the inside, uh, architecturally and also uh, storytelling-wise. Um, how do you present the history of these little-known uh, and un little largely unappreciated American hero and heroine, Lydia Hamilton Smith and Thaddeus Stevens, in the context of their national story, which is, you know, the, all the le years leading up to the Civil War, Civil War, Reconstruction, Abolitionism, Underground Railroad, all of those stories right. need to be presented and displayed. And there couldn't be a better team of people who've been engaged to, 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 to do this exhibit design. So th this, this firm, Ralph Applebaum and Associates, which I found out really kind of um, serendipitously, I don't know if that's the right word, but paradoxically, um, they were involved in the concept design planning in the late 90s when I was involved with the Steel Industry Heritage Group oh, back yeah. there. They were hired to, to do um, concept planning, uh, graphic design. You know, what can this space look like if you, if you wanted to create an old cavernous un, uh, uh, steel plant in, in, into displays that were functional, engaging, safe. So that, that's the kind of work they do. 
This is the same firm that just recently executed and finished the uh, African-American Museum of History and Culture in DC, the new oh, Smithsonian okay. Museum. And they also, this firm also is now engaged in doing President Barack Obama's presidential library near Chicago. So they are the best top shelf people to be able to tell these intriguing and complex stories of the people here in Lancaster that, that had a national platform. And then with Lancaster history being the, um, uh, the project developer managers under the under arrangements with the Convention Center Authority, um, Lancaster history has, is, are the stewards of James Buchanan's Wheatland at, here in Lancaster City. So here are these two amazingly significant mid, 20, mid 19th century American historical figures uh, polar opposites of the political uh, spectrum, both living in this little town of Lancaster at the time. Right. And this organization, Lancaster History, now has the, the responsibility and the, and the joy of being able to tell the whole world their stories and how this history shaped this local history. These local people helped shape national history. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is very interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way that they were, they were, yeah, that was the very same time period and very opposite ends, ends of the, of the political spectrum. So that is, that's, that's telling each story and, and having balance there that, that, that'll be an interesting, uh, an interesting um, sure. needle, needle to thread. <laughs> yeah, as you could say. And so, yeah. How do you tell the story uh, of then and now and the differences and yet the similarities of the issues we're dealing with today. Right. It is, it's so, I mean, Stevens, the champion of um, his biggest accomplishment when he was a legislator was public education. Yeah. An, an issue that's like coming to boiling point here in Pennsylvania regarding school issues and school funding issues. We have Stevens also in the U.S. Congress as the primary champion of the 14th Amendment or one, well, he, he wasn't the primary. He was one of many radical Republicans pushing Right. Uh, civil rights and equal rights and citizenship. So 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law and defining citizenship and also making sure that the Southerners were were addressed in terms of how they were trying to get back into the union um, without any preconditions, virtually no preconditions. And they wanted reparations for the losses right, they suffered the loss their, during the Civil property. War for being <laughs> traitors and seditionists. Right. You know, so he, Stevens was the guy who was stopping that from happening. So all of these issues we're dealing with that he was dealing with then still have direct resonance to today and today's contemporary issues. So That's interesting stuff to be able to be part of uh, yes. explaining to people. And so the other part of what I'm doing is also I've been doing uh, in, as an independent contractor uh, company service provider, which I've called uh, Origins of the Underground Railroad, uh, doing private uh, custom tours for visitors to Lancaster for the last couple of years, which is an outgrowth from the, the work that I started uh, with the African-American Historical Society of South Central Pennsylvania, which in 2015, I guess it was, um, we started deciding that, well, this, this group, African-American Historical Society, was, it's a, sm a relatively small group of people who are history-minded people, uh, started in Lancaster City, under the umbrella of Crispus Attucks uh, Community Center and uh, would meet regularly, have an annual meeting, did genealogical training, did some really early good groundworks uh, activities. And specifically Dr. Leroy Hopkins, a retired Millersville University German professor whose family goes back to you know, pre-colonial era 
and who's written almost all there is to be written, has written so far about African-American history and culture in Lancaster County through his work in the Lancaster County Historical Society journal articles. He's written a dozen of these things over the last 20 years. And um, so he really plowed the fields of this history uh, and collected new stuff and combined old material and presented new material through, through these journal articles. So anyway, so he, he was the glue that held together and, and uh, from which we launched these downtown historic African-American heritage walking tours. So we had a, a conference about this and um, I've developed a, a, a poster sized map of the city with small uh, pictures of buildings and descriptions of the properties. And, 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 and I gave it to the, um, the city of Lancaster Visitor Center. And Annie Weeks, who is, who's now at Lancaster History, she was then the director of the uh, uh, downtown Lancaster walking, or I'm sorry, Visitor Center. Right. So she, uh, later after I, we gave her this poster for, to be displayed at the Visitor Center, she said, you know, people keep coming in here and they're looking at this and they're asking staff questions about it and we don't have the answers to, for them. So why don't you guys think about setting up a walk, doing a walking tour like the existing walking tours is, is operating, has been operating since the bicentennial era in the city of Lancaster. So we got together and came up with this patch of a dozen or so historic sites that you can get to within a three block area and set up. And we started, then we got some money from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lancaster to train citizens of Lancaster, about 20 people. Uh, that forced us to create a good guidebook with illustrations and descriptions of these properties. So the uh, person who has an interest in this could pick it up and read it and become a conductor, as we call them, right. a, a tour conductor. And we also have what we call site hosts, people who on these tour days are stationed at these various places and they tell stories to the group of you know, 10 or 15 people who are then brought to that site. So it's worked out really well for the last five years. We shut down last year because of COVID. So that there was such demand for that. People kept calling the visitor center or because we had literature at Discover Lancaster, the, the main county visitor center, um, people kept asking, when can we do these tours? But those tours were only available on, on, the, on one Saturday of the month during the warm season. So like May to October, so six or seven days a month. But people kept asking, where can I take this tour? Or can, can we bring a busload of people in? Or can, um, can I bring my students in from a, a suburbs and, and take a, a tour? So we had to figure out a way to address the interest in this. So I started doing these things independently because I'm a self-employed consulting historian. I had the flexibility to set up a, a, a way to address this market. So that's what I did for the last year or so. And when COVID started to break this year, the demand was just overwhelming to me. It, I, I was, you know, promoting, marketing, scheduling, booking, conducting these tours, which could be a combination of walking and so much sometimes driving tours, where I'm in my car and I'm talking to people through cell phone connections to people following me behind me, <laughs> and, and and we stop here and there and get out, walk around, get back in the cars. Yeah. So we've, I've been able to come up with a half a day tour that works pretty well from Columbia Wrightsville area and then take back roads into the city and then do the same downtown city walking tour um, with a pass through uh, Wheatland and Lancaster Historical Society campus. Um, so that, then that all, I, I couldn't keep up with the demand for the, the, the tours. That's great. So that started a conversation with Tom Ryan and Robin Surratt at Lancaster History. And so then that led into the discussion, well, can you put your tours under their umbrella, our umbrella, and then also 
what, what would you think about a part-time position here with the Stevens and Smith sites? That all that's so that's how it, as of last month, that's what I'm I'm doing. And um, we're just about ready to release the marketing material for the tours that will be offered in, in various combinations. And so that's coming up soon. Oh, that's that's exciting. And I'm glad that you'll be able to to probably reach more people uh, this yeah. way and tell and tell that history, because I do think that that um, is important, um, important history. I, the the few tours that I have I have done um, and I've learned I've learned so much that I, I never learned. And I even took a, a local history class um, in my senior year of high school and that none of that was included in, in, in our local history. Yeah, um, I, unfortunately, that's the case. And that's what we hear when we're giving these tours, uh, whether it's me individually or, or the African-American history tours, which are still ongoing and, and probably will still off, also be offered next year. Um, and that's, that's the, the, the kind of downside of the whole thing. But it's also rewarding to, to think that you're sharing something that, again, is, is not just from the dustbins of history. It is absolutely relevant to understand what happened back then here and across the country to get an idea of why we are where we are today with the still continuing divide between in between uh, the, the racial divide we face in this country. Right, right, right. And, and the, um, I don't know if it's philosophical, but the, 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 maybe it is philosophical, the, the differences between even the, the political parties and, and their position and their understanding <clears throat> and positions. Cause I, I find it very hard to, to come to a common ground when you can't, we can't even agree on the same set of facts. And yes. <laughs> it is, it's, yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty sad. It's yeah. really sad. Yeah. One of the stories that really sets uh, just, I mean, I, again, I never heard virtually any of this stuff when I was coming through my years of schooling. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that could be me. I could have been, you know, daydreaming looking out the window or, <laughs> or the teachers didn't cover it. I think maybe a combination of the two, <clears throat> but Reconstruction and, and what that meant and the failure of Reconstruction and what that meant to America today and, and the role of Thaddeus Stevens and, and his people from his wing of the, of the radical, so-called radical Republican Party. Right. I'm still trying to figure out whether, whether Stevens and his people embraced that descriptive term of their policies. Or if that or, was a derivative. Or if it was a pejorative yeah. Yeah, thing. Someone said to me it was, it, was, it was something that they embraced because it didn't have the negative connotations that it might have today. Like you hear this constant drumbeat about radical Islamists, right. terrorists, yeah. you know. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I could, I could see, I could see the embrace of that, but I could also see it being a, a you know, something that was, was, was not, not a compliment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I right. could see it both ways. So, so tell me a little bit about. I know you've done a lot of research about the Underground Railroad in in Lancaster County. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, when I left it. Historic Preservation Trust and realized how little I knew about this time period and this history and then realized how important it was. Um, I, I started branching out looking for new avenues uh, for my private consulting work. And um, so that was 2003, I guess it was. And just a few years before the National Park Service had come up with this national program called the Underground Railroad Network to Freedom mm. as kind of a a similar process of nominating properties to receive an, a, a, a designation of, of historic significance 
in this case, based on its connections to Underground Railroad history and activity, similar to the National Register, but it's not as rigorous of a application filing uh, process, uh, recognizing that these buildings, these places connected to Underground Railroad are so little acknowledged and, and documented at that point in time. Right. Most of them threatened and deteriorated that you know you they wouldn't stand the the muster of a national register criteria for for listing, um, so there's a lot of leniency given to allowing places to be designated as connected to the underground railroad at least early on in the in the process was, so they put together a, a you know standard form that you had to fill in, and so I started looking for pro properties that had this connection. So again, working with Dr. Leroy Hopkins. Uh, Darlene Colon, who was who is a longtime historian, uh, she was on the board of the uh, Historic Preservation Trust several years ago when I was the director there. Um, and who else did we work with? Um, uh, some folks in Columbia, Nora Stark, Michael Stark, uh, for, for their property, their museum that they have there, the Bank Museum. So I started looking for partners who could help me Put together these applications. I would do the do the the writing and the graphic design and the photography, and community other community historians would help me assemble the information. So uh, Leroy Hopkins and I submitted applications for the William Goodrich House in York City. Right. Uh, and right outside of the city of York was the Willis House, a Quaker a Quaker family's house that was known to have been an Underground Railroad safe house. And then we submitted. Um, the Columbia uh, National Bank Museum, Nora and Mike Stark's uh, property, a private um, uh, house museum and, and you know, a bank that had connections to William Whipper and Stephen Smith, where they kept their book of accounts in there. We submitted uh, Bethel AME Church, and we submitted um, Zerker's Hotel in Christiana, uh, as associated with the resistance at Christiana. So like Darlene and Cologne and I worked on that, along with Nancy Plumley, who's a, a, an amazing uh, historian from Gap area. Her family, she's a direct descendant of two noted abolitionists involved with the Underground Railroad way back when. So we got successful nominations of, of these properties together and got the recognition of the National Park Service, five properties, two in New York, three over here in, in Lancaster County. So that then started, um, um, I forget, I guess I did a presentation in Harrisburg about these sites, uh, explaining to people there, it was a Preservation Pennsylvania conference. Okay. And explaining to people, there's a lot more sites out there that other people, anybody could nominate these properties. And it goes to a kind of a, a six or eight member National Park Service peer review committee twice a year. And they review the information. And if they accept your, your research, they put it on the, they put it on their website and they, they share, they give you the, um, the authority to use their logo to brand use to, to brand your marketing right. material in whatever it is you produce about the site. Uh, and then occasionally if, if Congress appropriates some funds, there's generally modest amounts of money that you can get to, to stabilize the building or to do more research into the subject material or, um, otherwise to, uh, like in the case of Zerker's Hotel, uh, the Christiana resistance story there, after we got the designation in 2003 and 2006, there was money available. And that's what created the, um, 
the museum, the little one-room museum that's there where there's oh, yeah. graphic displays and maps and stories that, again, Nancy Plumley and Darlene Colon and I put that, uh, put that application together and then did the installation there based on that. So the, it's a flexible program, and it also can get you in the door for other grant-making sources. Because if you can say this property has been recognized by the National Park Service right. as having this authentic connection, and you generally have to submit at least two pieces of credible uh, evidence, whether it's primary source material or secondary source material, that is something in a book, something in a newspaper article right. later written that validates the connection of the property to some kind of underground railroad activity. And that can be the owners at the time provided shelter, which is the classic definition of an underground railroad safe house or station. Right. Uh, somebody, somebody's told to go to this particular property and that family is likely to welcome you in and give you some food, clothing, support, a place to save until it's ready and safe to go on to the next site. And then they direct you to that next site. So that's the, the basic con construct of what the, how the Underground Railroad operated secretly uh, around here and uh, all, all other parts of the country too, where this activity happened. Uh, you can also point to an event that might be, let's say, a, a noted a journalist or somebody, someone or, or a newspaper editor who was an anti-slavery person lived at the house you know, on this particular street. So that property can be designated as an underground, as a network to freedom site. Maybe some legal action took place or some, some um, hostile activity occurred at a, at a property. You can nominate that. Now, the other thing is when, when you know of a person's involvement in Underground Railroad, if there's no physical place left to commemorate that person, the Park Service accepts the person, that person's gravesite as the appropriate place to commemorate that person and, and, and all the stuff that they contributed. So um, this Park Service program is flexible because you can recognize a physical property, whether it's a building or, like I just said, a, a cemetery site, a grave site. Right. It also recognizes a program. So in the case of a program, that could be a live performance. It could be a tour. It could be a, a video. They can, you can produce a video, and the content would be then reviewed and sanctioned as being accurate and authentic. And so you can use that as a marketing presentation of your, right. your product, right. your project. So in the case of uh, Bethel AME, the, uh, the Living the Experience live performance was submitted um, back in 2003 or thereabouts and recognized by the Park Service as, uh, as part of the Underground Railroad story in this area as portrayed in, the, in that live performance space. Right. Um, let's see. And then the other thing they have is a facility, Underground Railroad Network to Freedom facility. And that's what the Bank Museum in Columbia is. So there was no actual Underground Railroad activity happening at that bank. But because they have these records there, uh, the, the business activities of Stephen Smith and William Whipper, the two African-American business people who became fabulously wealthy and were known to be very active in the Underground Railroad, that evidence there in a, in a, in a facility where there's research primary source material, right. that's, been, that's what was designated there. Then the most recent one is that, um, uh, myself and Robin Surratt at Lancaster History in 2017, we submitted the collections at the Lancaster County Historical Society uh, that have to do with Underground Railroad research and records. And that's been in like, so Lancaster History's building and its research facility, its library, its archives 
is recognized by the Park Service as an Underground Railroad Network to Freedom facility, an archive where you okay. can do research. Right, right. A similar one, the, uh, the Historical Museum Commission Archives in Harrisburg is considered under the same Park Service Network to Freedom facility because they have primary source material there. The, um, and there's a, 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 government, a federal government building in Records Center in Philadelphia that also is recognized in the same vein. Um, so that's how this system works. And again, it's opportunities abound that, that, um, that, that other pro properties can be given this designation. And then, and then what, like what, what I think could happen now is there are, I've worked on a number of these across the state uh, and other areas. I was, thankfully, I was hired um, 10, 20, 10, 15 years ago by various uh, travel and tourism agencies oh, yeah. uh, using some state uh, money that uh, my good friend Linwood Sloan, who's now in Lancaster, uh, was instrumental in arranging, I guess you could say, because he was involved with the um, State Department of Community and Economic Development. His office, his portfolio was all about advancing heritage tourism, cultural and heritage tourism opportunities with a lot of elevation of the African-American experience, which by association includes Underground Railroad. Right. So I, was, I was able to get small uh, contracts with these tourism agencies who were trying to build this infrastructure of these various historic sites. So that was very rewarding to, to be able to involved in that back, you know, again, 10, 15 years over the course. So in our area, Southeastern PA, there's a, just an abundance of these sites now designated as having this authentic connection, but there's more to be done out there. There's other sites that can and deserve to be elevated in this way. One of which is the Mifflin House in, in, um, in, in, your in, in Helen Township, right above, uh, um, right above Wrightsville, across the river from Columbia. Yeah. That was, it's an absolutely, it's on the, it's uh, eligible for the National Register of Historic Places based on its Underground Railroad connections there with the Mifflin family going back to really early 1800 oh. through 1840. That was the safe house of the Underground Railroad in the passageway of these people. When you would come north from Northern Virginia or Maryland, you, most people knew somehow that somewhere in this land called Pennsylvania, there was more opportunities, more chances for someone to help you some way, shape or form. And it was on the way north because back then, again, this is coming out of the Revolutionary War period, the early formations of the country. There were uh, you know, some notions that if you got to Canada, that was gonna be the, the land of, of freedom. So go north. But when they would come north, let's say in this period, 1780 to 1800 thereabouts, yeah. there was not much west of the Susquehanna River and very little safe transportation easy ways to get di directly north, okay? Right. So you can follow the North Star. That was what the people kind of concocted as a way to move and get out of this horrors of slavery and come north. But Pennsylvania, when you got into Pennsylvania, everything transportation-wise, people settlement-wise, gravitated east toward Philadelphia. Right. Right. So people would come north, they're in Pennsylvania, they found somewhat welcoming communities here and there, safe houses that were of, of, of humanitarian-minded people who then connected you, but you were always told, go east and cross the Susquehanna River. And the Mifflin House was right there on top of the hillside with this welcoming family of Quakers for two generations, welcoming people there, directing them then across the river. A lot of times under the protective umbrella of this African-American river boatman called, whose name was Robert Loney, 
who's written up in all of uh, many of the historical narratives that we've been, been able to put together. This a black gentleman was hired between the Mifflin family and their cousins across the river, the Wright family, the early okay. Quaker Wright settlers over there. So there were the only place you could cross was the Susquehanna River at Columbia Wrightsville, where the where this long, massive wooden covered bridge, the longest wooden covered bridge in the world, was built in like 1812. Um, so people had pretty much had to cross there, and you could cross there all season long. Whereas if you're trying to cross in the wintertime and the ice, and it's very, very dangerous to try to cross that, that wide, shallow, rocky, dangerous right. river. Yeah. But the bridge provided a constant flow. So it became a funnel of transportation of people trying to get to Lancaster County and then further east to Philadelphia. Because why Philadelphia? Because it was, a, it was the capital of the country at the time. It was the place where the, the immortal words, the mission statement, all men are created equal. Was, was coined, was placed, you know, enshrined in the American psyche. And there was the largest concentration of freed African, people of African descent living in and around Philadelphia. So once you got there, you, would be, you could get lost in this large city and you could also get help. You could get employment and you could get eventually, if you wanted to, safer transport north um, to New North England, to New York and maybe to Canada. So that was the travel pattern that developed over those periods. And Lancaster County, Chester County, York County are right there along that borderline that received all of these people. Right. So all that together is why this. And so what I'm thinking is now the National Park Service has elevated, elevated, thankfully, at long last, Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass as the kind of his, historical characters that people connect to the eastern shore of Maryland. And that's where the new National Park Service Museum is. It's where the Network to Freedom staff is located, um, and it is where the story of Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad is, is put on wonderful full display. Right. So she operated only in the 1850s between that area of Eastern Shore where she escaped from enslavement on a plantation, came to Philadelphia and worked with William Still and the other members of the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee who would receive freedom seekers and then give them support, advice, uh, and ways to get farther north if they wanted to keep moving and get away as far away as they could from whatever horrors they were leaving in their former life. So we now have this, these two historical characters who exemplify the freedom-seeking Underground Railroad movement in that region, Eastern Shore, Maryland, with the, uh, with the line directly north of Philadelphia. My point is, and what I'd love to see happen, long-range vision here along the east, west to east corridor of the southern counties of southeastern Pennsylvania, starting at Franklin County, then Adams County, Gettysburg, then York County, Susquehanna River, Lancaster County, Chester County, Delaware, Philadelphia. That whole string along the Mason-Dixon line, which is the, the most defining element, physical element, actually absolutely marked in the ground, right. below, below which are the slave states, above which is free state of Pennsylvania, and then the other places north. All along the Route 30 corridor are it could, to me, can be the axis upon which heritage travelers can visit a whole string of historic sites. Right. And I can tie Thaddeus Stevens and by connection, this amazing partner in his life, Lydia Hamilton Smith, I see the two of them as the overarching historical characters to this region. And they and all of their associates that they worked with, you know, in the Underground Railroad secretive activities, as well as Stevens on the, on the platform of being a national politician. Right. 
this region could be cohesively marketed and packaged and stories told to bring people to understand this con this history in the context where it happened. And uh, you know, how many millions of people go to Gettysburg every year? Oh my goodness, yeah. And they and they they hear all about the details of that incredible battle, you know, turning point of the of Civil War. Right. But they don't really hear the story of how Wrightsville, Columbia, and the burning of the bridge four days before Gettysburg was like back. a direct connection right. to why yeah. Gettysburg happened, when and where it happened. Right. Just after that, the burning of that bridge stopped the Confederate advance because they were going to surely sack Lancaster, Harrisburg, Philadelphia, and threaten. Washington, D.C. Right. from the north. Go, which come was, come from was, above, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And because, and the, and the heroic story of how, you know, there was a couple of, a couple of Union officers who were under the command of the, of, the, of the Army at the time, the Union Army, from this area. They had been kind of battle-hardened soldiers, but they were here kind of in their semi-retirement, I don't know what you, what you would call it. They were still engaged in the military as, as officers. And they were they were the head of and they were responsible for the local militia that would that needed would need to be called up in the advance in the event of some type of an invasion. So they did. They called they were ordered to call up the militia, and the militia was made up of you know average everyday people from the community, right. students, male students from Millersville and Franklin and Marshall College, um, black foundry workers from Columbia and Wrightsville, where they were had this all of this a lot of heavy industry going on there. And they were able to marshal those guys to become all manner in support of resistance against this major advance of the Confederate Army that was on its way east. So the story goes, they tried to uh, blow up a section of the bridge, but this, the bridge was so strong they couldn't knock it down to just stop the Confederate advance. So then they, the, they were then ordered to uh, put new charges out there and, and coat it with coal tar on the inside of this bridge, which then they blew up the charges and the story goes, according to Chris Vera uh, from the Columbia Historic Preservation Society, he says, and I don't know whether, where he found this, but it's a wonderful little, like, uh, I don't know, cherry on the top of that whole thing. Yeah. He says that a black foundry worker flicked a cigar and, and set, the, set the charges off, which blew the, blew the uh, charges off, which then caught fire. And then, unfortunately, the prevailing winds burned that entire bridge all the way across. Right. It like burned for three days. But it did stop the Confederates from coming across, um, and and so that story is is I've asked people who said uh, they're going to either come, they took my tour, and then they go to Gettysburg. I said, please ask a Park Service employee if they if if they heard of the connection between the burning of that bridge and why Gettysburg happened there. And I'm, I'm probably thinking they may probably not tell that story as fully as it as it should be told. I don't know. Yeah, that would be that would be my guess. Um... I don't, I, I think that I've, I've heard that in connection to Columbia, but I don't know if I've heard that in, in Gettysburg. And the last tour that I took, they were just selling CDs and the, you were doing a driving tour. So yeah, on your own. Yep. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yep. That works. I guess that works. Okay. As well. Yeah. If you, if you have a CD in your car anymore, anyway, right. most right. cars don't have them anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But most computers don't come with, with, you know, a disk drive anymore. Drive. Either. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. So um, I, 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 when you were, when you were telling or explaining about the underground road, I thought of one thing that I learned from the time I was probably in elementary school that I think is now being disproven that, you know, that, you know, it wasn't a, a really an, a, an, an underground railroad. It was, there was not really a railroad. It was just a term that they used. But mm-hmm. I think now we're starting to find through, through research that they really were utilizing the railroads, at least in this area. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so that is the big, I guess, the holy grail to be found. Because if you ask the Park Service uh, today or look on their website, that's what they will say. It was, a, this, this thing was a, a social and political movement that started around the time of the revolution and it kind of ended around emancipation, early 1860s. But um, no one knows where it started. Um, we And no one knows who first came up with the name, came up with that term. And no one will probably ever know where in, in any place that it really started because it, came, it kind of sprang up organically as a, as a resistance against slavery all over the country. But it did certainly happen more intensely around here. But, but you know, you're absolutely right. What we do know is that the actual railroad between Philadelphia and Columbia, which was known as, guess what, the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad, which was a state enterprise. Okay, we're talking about infrastructure investment today on a mass scale of a lot of it transportation related, right? So this is what these people were doing back in the 1820s and 1830s in Pennsylvania. They were building an infrastructure network across Pennsylvania from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh that would take you in four days or so to cross using trains, canals, and inclined planes where they would lift the canal boats up over the Allegheny Ridge with a series of steam engines. So this was a very kind of complex and cumbersome, but also limited as to uh, weather, because uh, you couldn't operate this thing all year long. But it was the first primitive attempt to, to use public dollars to open up the interior of Pennsylvania for uh, economic development and settlement. Right. They were competing against the Erie Canal in New York and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in Maryland. So this railroad today, four years after it opened between Philadelphia and Columbia, we know through research today that it has been, it was used by William Whipper and Stephen Smith with help from William Wright, the white Quaker. They came up with a system of installing false compartments inside their privately owned lumber cars, their freight hauling lumber cars, because Smith and Whipper were lumber merchants in in Columbia. And they moved people through well into the 1850s on this railroad, above ground railroad, and, you know, it surely seems you can make a logical conclusion that perhaps that name emanated from the use of these railroad cars because the railroad was like the internet of its day. It was this fascinating new technology right. that, that was capturing the imagination. <clears throat> and, you know, nowhere else in the country that I know of was, the, was an actual above ground railroad used this early and systematically to move people to the place where you had the best opportunities for freedom uh, which would be Philadelphia. Right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 it makes sense to me. And, and I know that that's like a common, you know, that's what, that's what I learned in school. But then once I started learning more about what was going on and, and the false bottoms and the, and the, you know, it makes sense that they didn't just say, oh, you know, why wouldn't, why wouldn't they name it something else if, you know, if, if a railroad wasn't involved, you know what I mean? Like, it, it yeah, seems like, it, yeah. it seems like they could come up with a different name. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah. And then, and where, and the other thing is, where did this notion of underground come from? Right. To have the connotation of secrecy, and I think I have an answer for that too. Um, the Pennsylvania Bank Barn. Oh yeah. An absolutely unique architectural uh, feature and form from specifically from Central Europe. You know, the the, the place that came from the folks who came here as the Mennonite pietist people settlers came from that middle section of, of uh, Austria, Germany, France, Switzerland, where they built the barns into the hillside and they had the bank around the back so you could bring your, your right. animal so feed from above and drop it down below and the animals were kept below. Well, that, that ramp in the back, we know around here had, was, the, was a root cellar for saving vegetables, uh, root vegetables, potatoes, turnips, which was the main thing that they fed their livestock with. And we do know that many of those early stone bank barns were used to hide people because guess what? People for who, who were slave catchers coming out of Virginia, flatlands, the tidewater, they didn't have bank barns down there. They didn't have that style of architecture. They didn't have the imprint of the, of the Mennonite and Amish people who came from Central Europe here that they, did, they didn't have it there. So they were, and we have the terrain here that accommodates the same type of uh, slope Right. That, that you build a building, you build your barn into that. And that's your, that was your refrigeration system. So that's those spaces underground were used. Up, but I know five, four or five barns around Lancaster County that are pretty unique to this area. That's where they were. That's they used off, often to hold people in there as, as freedom seekers yeah. to get that's away from the slave catchers. And that makes sense. And, and yeah, if you're, if you're going into an area where you're not familiar with the architecture, you would know maybe to look underneath. So that's yeah, behind that's a wall that, you know, yeah. you could have bales of hay stacked up against that wall, but behind it is an opening that would get you into that space. Yeah. yeah. So similarly, the cistern at the Thaddeus Stevens and Lydia Hamilton Smith historic site is believed to have been used as an emergency hiding place when it was no longer needed to collect rainwater for their domestic water supply in the, in the properties there. At the same time, when the archeologists were doing the dig there, uh, one of our local researchers, Tim Neeson from Millersville, mm -hmm. he found an article that claimed that Daniel Gibbons, that Daniel and Hannah Gibbons at Bird in Hand, right. the Gibbons family are, are supposed to have been the most active underground railroad agents in all of Lancaster County. Uh, before he destroyed his records, supposedly he had records showing that at least over a thousand people passed through his property and that he assisted in some way, that is the Gibbons family. Anyway, he supposedly had a cistern that was used for emergency hiding places when slave catchers would be tracking people and looking and investigating or uh, like searching his property. Right. So a cistern is another underground vessel that could, that was no, if it was no longer needed for rainwater collection, you could hide people in those those underground tanks, basically. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's one of the prevailing areas of research that we're still looking at, and hopefully, when after twenty twenty four, when thousands of people come to the Thaddeus Stevens Lydia Hamilton Smith Historic Site and Museum, and they see that cistern and they hear the theory of the cistern or what we call the riddle of the cistern, right? Was this thing actually used to hide people? Um, Maybe someone walking through that museum will the light bulb will go off and they will say, I remember that my great, great, great grandfather had a diary or a letter or something that said when he escaped slavery, he came to Lancaster and they hid he went into this tavern, which was the Kleist Tavern on the corner, and right. he was hidden in this underground 
space for a couple of hours or overnight until the bad guys were went away and then he was he came out um that's the kind of evidence you need to find before you validate that cistern as being actually used to harbor people yeah yeah very yeah it's very very interesting and 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 exciting work uh thank you thank you for for sharing it with me um is there any i uh, we have a couple more questions before we wrap up but is there anything else that you wanted to share about the the underground railroad um before we before we go into the the other questions um I think we covered it pretty well. Thanks. I mean, the, the long range vision, the Stevens and Smith historic site, I'm hoping will be, um, the, it will be the place where people will come to learn these stories right. as travelers and local people t- will be able to come because obviously, again, we do know that in the schools, we need to, we need to extend this information into the, into the school and the curriculum. Right. They will come there and then get the bigger picture of this regional activity and then plan excursions from from there with the knowledge that will be shared at this historic site. And then that will become a part of the economic and education generation uh, coming out of that site, which has, you know, needs to be told. It does, it does, does. I I, I agree. And I think it also, I've been, and this was the, the project and the vision for the project was definitely ahead of the curve, but, um, you know, oftentimes I ask people, um, you know, trends or challenges in preservation, and I'll often hear, you know, the the theme lately has been, you know, the more inclusivity in 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 the storytelling, and definitely, you know, I think that when people see themselves in the history and in the stories, they feel like they're they're more of uh, they have more of a stake in in the in the whole in the whole story of the country, and and understanding that. You know, if you see yourself reflected in from the beginning, you know that this is your country also. And I mm-hmm. think that that's I think that so I think telling all of these stories is very important to to understanding not only where we are, but also feeling like you're it's part, you know, it's your story, too. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. So um, so that kind of leads me into what what do you see from your vantage point of the trends and uh, challenges in preservation? Hmm. Um, well, I have been long promoting, um, the potential positive outcome, um, of a better understanding of the Pennsylvania constitution Mm -hmm. and the legal basis for preservation. Because as we know, um, our local governance in Pennsylvania 2,500 individual municipalities, each one of which has its own set of rules for how land is is developed, how buildings are treated, what gets demolished and under what terms, all of which affects historic and cultural resources. What's in the ground? What's what's what about the first con? What about the first first inhabitants, the Native American inhabitants in this area? What's left of their culture is often left over in in the ground somewhere and. How do we accommodate that at the local level? Um, It turns out that the state constitution, the 1971 Environmental Rights Amendment, passed by major bipartisan efforts under two consecutive legislative sessions of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, 1970-71. And then it was put to a voter referendum. Do you, as a citizen of Pennsylvania, want to to, uh, amend the constitution so that Pennsylvania government 
recognizes individual environmental rights essentially on the same level as all of the other Bill of Rights that are in the Pennsylvania Constitution, which are copied from the federal U.S. government Bill of Rights, the, the freedom of religion, assembly, bearing arms, uh, rules against unreasonable search and seizure, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. All of those basic civil rights are, are taken from the U.S. Bill of Rights that are in the Pennsylvania Constitution. In 1971, a four to one margin of Pennsylvania residents voted to include environmental rights in that. And the, and the recitation of those rights are, citizens in Pennsylvania have a right to clean air, clean water, and the historic, natural, scenic, and aesthetic values of the environment. So in essence, no government of Pennsylvania is supposed to deny or deprive a citizen of enjoying those values of the environment, which is basically everything. It's all the environment. Right. It's and, and when you when you think about the it, terminology, um, the scenic and aesthetic values, the historic and natural. So what that says to me is every ordinance, every zoning ordinance and land development ordinance in every government in Pennsylvania should have something very, very concrete, very direct, concise that makes sure that any decisions made by that local government in, or in essence, whatever influence advisory capacity, the county governments also, right. the 67 of them, working with their individual municipalities, all should be on board with finding ways to preserve our natural environment, the historic, scenic, and aesthetic values of the environment. We have to hold our public officials to, to, to understanding those terms and understanding their rights and responsibilities as, as administrators of land use laws. Yeah. If, if everybody were on the same page with that, we would, we would, it would, there would be few and far between buildings allowed to deteriorate that might have historic significance. There would be every effort being made to direct funds and resources to stabilizing, preserving, and reusing those historic properties versus just kind of ignoring them like we have for whatever, you know, since, since, since time beginning, since, right. since day one. Because it all rubs, you know, everybody loves uh, to preserve farmlands and woodlands. It's like mom and apple pie, right? <laughs> but, but when you sell somebody, you can't let that building turn into, uh, you know, collapsing in and on itself. And no, you can't really tear it down right now because our laws say that you have to find a way to preserve it. If you don't want to preserve it, then sell it to someone else who will. Right. That's the extent of the ability that, that some municipalities in Pennsylvania have and that many, many more should have. And then we would stop losing these properties like we have been yeah. and losing the opportunities for the economic development that could derive from them, from the tax-based building that could derive from them. I mean, if you're a, a local municipal official and basically your, your main concern is how do we pay for public safety and how do we clear the streets when the snow comes, which is you know the, the core of what a local government right. does. Right. But these complex issues of land use planning, preservation, all of the things we're talking about now are pretty much, you know, hard to do for your average municipality. I mean, I, you know, that's, you have to recognize that that's a, uh, an issue there in terms of all the things they have the responsibility for. And now think about it, stormwater management. And what we now know is how we have wrecked the environment right. for the last 300 years of, of, of European contact in Penn's woods around here. We now realize everybody lives downstream from somebody else. We can't use the Susquehanna watershed as our toilet and flush everything into the Chesapeake Bay 
and not affect the quality of life. And, the qual and then beyond that in Maryland and Virginia, the quality of the oceans as all of this water kind of just flows out to this, you know, we're all connected. Yeah. And Pennsylvania has, a, has is only one of three states in the country, Montana, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island are the only ones that enshrine citizens' environmental rights in their state constitution. <clears throat> that should be the basis of a major social and political movement to reclaim the mission of Pennsylvania's governance from the state legislature down to the every municipality that we have to get on board and preserve these historic and natural resources that we that we've inherited you know and and the whole notion of under, better understanding how native americans looked at their space and their time in the in the natural world you know they recognize that they're just they're inheritors for, and, and they're stewards of what, what they have now for the, and they're gonna take care of this stuff so that their kids and their grandkids have a better life. We don't have that general concept and precept yeah. when we look at the way we live in the world today. We are disposable. We don't look downstream. We don't plan for so many things into the future. And, and we have, the result is that we have what we have. We have a, a scarred industrial landscape. If you read the Supreme Court decisions, about the environmental rights amendment, the, the the commentary from the from the plaintiffs and the and the um, the people who push this notion yes. of um, how do we deal with the environment, and the, and the court decisions that followed it, recognizing that Pennsylvania, all of this wealth that was created in Pennsylvania, based on industrialization of the time period, you know, eight, 1900, give or take fifty years, that hundred year time span when all of these new technologies emerged all based a lot of ways on fossil fuels and, and a throwaway kind of mentality, just get on to the next new invention, the next new, new town. Right. That's what we've been left with, the scars of, um, of the past. And we need to do a better job now so that we can have a better future for the kids coming, coming after us. I, I, I agree. And I think that that's um, an important part of understanding um, that I don't think that most people know that that is in is in the Constitution and I or in the in the Pennsylvania Constitution. And I I think that it's important for 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 people to understand that that is enshrined in there and as a, as a right, and then therefore should you know trickle down from from the state down to the local levels. I, mm -hmm. I definitely I definitely agree with that. Yeah, thank you. So, state constitution, state legislature. They, the legislature creates what's called the enabling authority for local governments to, right. to act. And so it's a, it's a well thought out system of how you structure government. Um, but the point is the, 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 the quote, so-called Bible of land use planning is what's called the municipalities planning code. It's the statute that every local government builds its own Code environment, off. its own zoning ordinances. How do you deal with land use decision-making? Right. Um, when the state in two, year 2000 amended that statute, it included a mandate that every zoning ordinance shall provide for historic and natural resource protections, uh, which is a direct connection to the constitutional right. amendment. But there, there was, there's no penalty. There's no, there's no nothing, um, no, not, there's nothing to compel the local governments from uh, adopting measures that uh, either embrace that or don't, or, or that embrace those those protections at the local level. Right. It's up to you and me right. and citizens in the community to compel our local elected officials to enact these proper ordinances. 
And if people aren't aware of this, this is a constitutional right. They don't have the basis to go and push this at the local level. And, and so that's the message that more people need to understand, that, that they have an absolute right, if they care about this stuff, to make it happen at their local government level. I agree with you. And, and I often will, um, when I'm talking to homeowners, we're doing a, you know, doing a presentation about, about just you know, preservation matters in general. I'll say, you know, you know, all of those decisions about demolition, et cetera, are made at the local level. So it really does matter who you elect locally. If you, if you care about those things, you have to make yeah. sure that, that you elect people that also care about those things. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So very good. Um, so how, how can, um, how can our listeners learn more, take a tour? Uh, where should they go? Okay. Um, well, let's see. Tours. Um, Probably by next week, we'll have all of the uh, Lancaster, on the Lancaster History website, okay. lancasterhistory.org. We'll have uh, a whole explanation of the various kinds of tours that, I, that we're being able to offer. Okay, very good. Um, so there'll be um, regular tours throughout the week that people can book up to a day in advance. Um, then there will also be longer range tours where people can look out in the future and get a kind of a custom private tour, whether it's in a, a small, uh, like one or two cars driving around and with me leading, mm -hmm. talking by cell phone and depending on how, how many hours they want to go. Um, so we're trying to figure out how best to make it uh, affordable and practical for people to sign up for these things. So okay. I, can, I can also do uh, get on a motor coach if a group comes in from out of town and uh, a lot of the things that I've done with motor coaches recently, it's been a good connection. A lot of people come from out of town to go to see Sight and Sound in right. Lancaster County. And then, but they're also looking for something different to do for the other, if they're staying overnight, they have another half a day to do something. So I found and made connections with some of these, a lot of times church groups from out of town. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll get on, a, on, a, on their motor coach and, and direct the bus, their bus driver to go to the, some of these different sites in the area and, tell these stories of Underground Railroad, and which has, by the way, a direct connection to someone who's going for the religious thematic experience at, right. at Sight and Sound. The Underground Railroad was a religiously inspired civil rights movement, as we now look at it. Yeah. And it's, it was also racially integrated. We have black and white people working together in this area to support these newcomers who were coming, who were lost and trying to find a way to freedom. They found you know, a welcoming network not everywhere. This, this, I mean, there were still enslaved people in this, this area right. uh, as well, but there were more free people of African descent who then were working with established earlier settlers who came from Europe somewhere, um, and they welcomed these new people along the way. So it's a very nice connection to someone coming here to learn about the, the religious underpinnings of this whole story. Yes. Very, very good. And then um, how can our listeners contact you? Okay. Um, well, um, I welcome them to look at my, my website, which is uh, Origins of the Underground Railroad. Um, there's a lot of material on there that people can look into ahead of time, uh, links to various documents and studies and many of the applications that, that uh, documented these historic sites connected to the Underground Railroad. Uh, and my contact information is on there. So just call me uh, or email me and, and or look at the, if you want to specifically take a tour, um, go to the Lancaster County 
Historical Society Lancaster History website. Okay, very good. And we'll make sure we have all of that information on our website where the podcast is uh, hosted so that if okay. somebody's listening and they didn't get a chance to write it down, they can go there and find it. Wonderful. Yeah. So. And then the, the other other uh, website I have is um, focuses on the land use planning issues and the constitutional oh, sure. amendment issues we talked about. And um, that is that I given it to that name of Lancaster Heritage Allies dot org. Okay. There's, there's information. I will. We'll make sure we have that on also. Okay. Thank you, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you, Danielle. Appreciate it. Always good to talk and yes. be in touch. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.